0: Morning. Well, some of you might have snuck in after my opening announcement. If you did, uh, first, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here. Secondly, uh, we're having a little bit of uh, um, electrical power issues this morning. So if you're wondering what was going on, uh, if you walked in late, that's what's happening. Uh, But we're here and uh, we're, uh, what a great time of worship. Thank you guys. And, And now we get to open up the word of God and see what he wants to teach us This morning. Let me give you a little bit of a a kind of a rundown of where we're at right now as a a church family. Uh, We kicked the year off in January in a series called How to Create a Counterculture. Uh, uh, 10 steps to to forming uh, a counterculture. And uh, we looked at the first five steps uh, during January and February, and that led us to like our halfway point, which was last week with Eric Metaxas. Now, in the first five weeks, uh, if I could summarize it, it was pretty much this, that we can't talk about a reformation out there until we allow one to break in here. And by here, we mean here, We mean, uh, so you individually, uh, our our marriages or our dating lives, uh, and then our our families, our kids, and how we raise them, how we think about them, all of those types of things. And then last week was halftime, and this week, what we're doing is we're kicking off the second half of this series, and the second half of this series is like this. Uh, Now that we've talked about what we do in here and in here, uh, then what does it look like for us to take the Reformation out there? And so what we're going to do is talk about five steps. This is also the answer to the question, after a, a stirring speech or call to action last week like we had as a, uh, as a body of Christ collectively, uh, many would ask the question, okay, so now what do we do? What do I do? And as I was driving Eric uh, back to the airport last week uh, afterwards, and we're driving back, and we're having this conversation, and by the way, can I just say this, uh, every... Interaction I had with him, private, public, uh, in the car late at night, all of these types of things and when we're driving up and he was tired, all of that kind of stuff. Um, he was a man of integrity, a man of humility, and a man of conviction. And, and I just say it is great uh, that what you saw or what you see up here or what you hear on the radio um, was true in person. Uh, and that, that, that's, that's a sign of someone who's really being used by the Lord. And, uh, and, and we're having the conversation. I said, so Eric, what's the, what's the follow-up question you get after your speeches and stuff like that? He said, the number one is this. Now, what do I do? What do I do? We're trying to answer that question. And we're answering that question through these five weeks. And uh, here they are. The first week is this. We, we have to build strong churches We have to form tight-knit communities. We have to create alternate institutions. Uh, We have to either start or run or uh, lead in or work in business in a godly way, so how we engage in our work, Uh, and then lastly, we need to engage our neighbors, and so those are the things that we're going to talk about over the next five weeks, and so today, we're at the first one, and it is this, to build strong churches. Now, when I say to build strong churches, uh, let me give a a couple of caveats here at at the beginning. First, we understand And we know this, unless the Lord built the church, it'd be built in vain, right? And so when we say we're building strong churches, we know that ultimately it is God who created the blueprint, God who does the building and the growing, uh, but he uses us in that. God told Noah to build an ark, but he still made Noah actually build the ark, right? Even though he gave him the blueprint and the resources and everything else. And so uh, we, do, uh, we, we, we say build strong churches with that understanding, okay? Uh, secondly, I am talking about in the plural right now. Uh, and so ultimately, we can't change everybody else. And so we have to just start with us. Maybe you live somewhere else, or you're gonna, uh, or God is gonna call you somewhere else in some future time, something like that. Whatever that might be, let us all own that what our world needs, what our culture needs, what our society needs right now is strong churches. In fact, I'll say this most of the problems that we see in our culture are the result of weak churches. And where weak churches, Where weak churches prevail and dominate, culture follows. If the truth will set you free, then the lack of truth will do what? Enslave. Jesus says the truth will set you free. That means we know when truth is not prevailing, right? And now today what we're going to see is a challenge to the body of Christ. Whose job is it to promote and defend truth? This text makes it abundantly clear. And so one of the things this is going to do this morning is it's going to clear up some confusion on the purpose of the church, on what its greatest call Is it says it right in the text, and so this morning, uh, as we kick this off, uh, we're going to ask and answer four questions. Uh, Question number one is this Our strong church is needed right now. Question number two, what is a strong church? Question number three, what does a strong church do? And question number four, who is a strong church built on? And all four of the answers to those questions are found right here in these three verses. Now, as we enter into uh, these next five weeks, um, we do so uh, with this passage of Scripture in mind. And I want to read it to you just as kind of a setup, not just for today, but also for the next five weeks, uh, so that there's a a biblical foundation for what we're talking about. And here's where it, uh, let me read it to you. It's in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We're talking about Jesus here. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things, all things that we're going to talk about over the next five weeks, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He, Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. He might be preeminent. It was funny. uh, Somebody in one of our most recent, these are getting more and more recent. It's kind of fun. In our most recent one-star review on Google, okay? Okay we could really have like a weekly recap at this point. Okay. Uh, It said in there, something to this effect. He actually believes that Jesus is supposed to be above all things. Yes, I do. Unashamedly, I believe that Jesus is supposed to be the head of all things. And guess what? I'm not the only one who believes it. So did Paul. And that's why he wrote it in the book. That's why the Holy Spirit told him to write it in the book. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen? Amen. (laughs) What's the point? The point is that Jesus came And he died, and he rose, and he did so so that his kingdom, so that his kingdom might grow. And so we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, right, what it looks like uh, to see God's kingdom grow, to believe that it can and that it should, all right? All right, so here's question number one from our text, a simple question. Are strong churches needed? Well, let's look at Paul uh, and what he wrote. He said this, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, now it's interesting, and I know some of you, if you're like uh, grammatical police or, or, you know, you really like writing and proper writing, that Paul actually hides the thesis of his entire letter here right in the middle of the book. He says, here, here's why I'm writing. Uh, this is my premise, Paul is saying. Uh, I want you guys to know how to behave. In other words, I want you to know what the purpose of the church is. The entire letter that Paul is writing here to Timothy uh, is in the first three chapters before this moment and the three chapters after this moment are all uh, to the uh, the pastor Timothy saying, Timothy, this is the proper setup uh, of the church. And he talks about leadership and he talks about um, church structure and who can be involved or who should be involved and, and what expectations are there and how are the people supposed to interact with each other and all of these different things. But he tells him at the beginning, he says, this is really important and I'm going to get to you as soon as I can, but it's so important that just in case there's a delay, I'm going to go ahead and write some of it at now uh, down now. I'll fill you in on the rest of it later, but you have to know this from the beginning. You have to start with the right idea in mind. What's Paul doing? He's raising the urgency to Timothy that how the church operates and how it functions is incredibly important. I want to draw a parallel uh, to the, the world that we live in right now and to say this, that the same sense of urgency that Paul had back then for the need of a properly structured body of Christ, that that same sense of urgency exists today, that the church is needed Perhaps in my life more than ever before, the church is needed to operate as the church. That there is a sense of urgency. Now, part of what Paul is saying here is this. You guys don't want to start off on the wrong foot. Or if you want to use the building metaphor that he's going to pick up on later. If you knew somebody was building a house and they had the wrong blueprints and they were about to break ground, if you love that person, you would have a sense of urgency to get to them and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, you're You're digging in the wrong spot or you're about to lay the wrong foundation or what you're about to do is wrong and you're going to have to fix it later or it's going to ruin everything if you don't change it from here. And what Paul is doing is he's raising the sense of urgency. What about us in our current culture? Let me give you a couple of reasons why I think there's a, a, as, as high of a sense of urgency right now as there was back then. A couple of statistics, if you like statistics. It is uh, well um, thought of now, after we've been studying for the last three or four years or so, uh, since the, the shutdowns, uh, that church attendance across the nation is shut down, has, has lowered 20%. So, one out of five people who were attending church uh, pre uh, shutdown are no longer attending. Now, that's a startling statistic, okay? Let me give you one that I think is actually even more startling. And I think the parable of the sower actually affirms this. Uh, and it's this, uh, or the parable of the seed uh, is this that one out of six people who professed faith in Christ, evangelical, born again faith in Christ, pre the shutdown, uh, one out of six no longer do. One out of six. In three years. And you say, well, how could that be possible? Well, I mean, again, there are parables that help us understand this type of thing. That, uh, that, that the, the worries of this world or the defeat of the enemy has come in, right, and has tried to strip faith out of people. The need for the church is high. It's high. There's a sense, and there should be, my friends, a sense of urgency. That's from a more of an individual perspective, but let's look at it from a cultural perspective. If, if you follow culture at all or you read the news at all, one of the disturbing things you're, you're seeing lately uh, comes—I mean, you're, we're seeing a lot of disturbing things, let's be honest. But one of the disturbing things uh, is news that we hear from the nation of Canada where, where it seems like religious freedom is almost dead in Canada. And, 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 and even if you're not a Christian, by the way, that should concern you because historically speaking, where religious freedom goes to die, uh, what follows after that is intellectual freedom. What follows after that is economic freedom. And what follows after that is political freedom. That there, there, there's, a, there's a build up or a build down in this case. And we're seeing this uh, being destroyed, and, and where religious freedom begins to die, uh, totalitarianism follows, and the evils and the despairs that come from it. Uh, and so that's why, by the way, you're seeing this across our nation, that there are people who are not even followers of Christ right, that are standing up and are speaking boldly for the need of truth. And some of them, they're even speaking out of the Bible, even though they don't believe in Jesus. And you know why they're doing that? Because they know, uh, and they're smart enough to realize, uh, that the culture that they live in is built on a foundation of truth. And even if they don't adhere to all of it, if you remove this truth, the culture will fall in its entirety, And so this is why you are seeing the rise of uh, the, the labeled conservative intellectuals who are saying, hold on, even if you don't believe in Jesus, like just kind of like adhere to this. Otherwise, we're all done. Oh, and so the need for the church is urgent and great. We've answered the first question. Question two. Okay, so what then is a strong church? And look how much heat Paul packs in these couple of verses. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, what? You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Here's the first thing. A strong church has people who know how to behave in it couple of years ago, and by a couple of years ago, I mean 30 years ago, OK? So it was about 30 years ago. Uh, my family and when I say my family, I mean I was the kid, not the parent. Uh, my family, we went to, to Washington, D.C, and uh, we were in the, uh, the Capitol building, and uh, there was a little session of going on. There were some Congressmen down on the floor. We were on the upper part of it, and I was in one row, and my brother was in the bottom row, or no, a, a row below me, and I wanted to be on his row, and so I hopped over the seat. And, uh, and got down to my brother. And as soon as I did, like five guards came from nowhere and walked, and they were like, son, that's not how you behave in the Capitol. And I said, why don't you tell those clowns down on the floor how to behave in the Capitol? Right now? I was kidding. I didn't say that. I was seven. Okay. All right. That's what I'd say today. Now, um, he said, that's not how you behave in here. It's not how you behave in here. And uh, it, it's uh, the church, the strong church, a strong church knows what it is and how we are supposed to behave in the church of God. Now, when I say this, what I'm not talking about is, oh, this is what you can't say, and this is what you can't say, and this is how you have to dress, and this is how uh, this is, uh, you can't wear these things, and all of those kind of things. Um, it's kind of funny, I didn't plan this, but even our bass player today came up to me and he's like, can I wear my biker vest when I'm playing on stage? And I said absolutely, Jim, you can wear your biker vest. He said, I forgot my hat. I said, that's fine. Wear it next time, right? That's not what I mean. I mean, we've got to know how to behave. And what does it mean to behave? We talked about it in the first half of this series. It means to live a godly life, to pursue holiness. It means to have this never-stop-learning mentality. I want to grow, and I want to grow, and I want to learn, and I want to learn. It means to pray that the Lord would strip us both of our desire for sin and our propensity toward spiritual pride. That we would uh, have a grace and a love for one another. That we would understand the nature of the familial relationship that I'll get into here in a second, that is the church. But beyond it, it says that we would know how to behave. And uh, one of the things we used to say around here a lot is this, that church is not a social club. It's not a social club. We're not here to network for our business. Or, uh, we're not here, uh, and, and the church spe- er, and the scriptures specifically talk about showing partiality, right? Elevating certain people uh, because of money or because of influence or because of any of the other worldly uh, uh, things that we typically elevate in. As, as I've said it before, part of being a part of the church should uh, put you into a level of community and connection with people that outside of the church you probably never would. That you'd look and go, man, I can't believe I'm friends with him or her. And you say, ah, what, what's going on there? Oh, it's, it's the gospel and the spirit has united me in a way that nothing else could. Church is not a social club. And another thing then, that we learn in here is, is strong churches, we, we know how to behave in that way. But the thing he, he tells us next is this, that you may know how one ought to behave in what in the household of God in the household of God. Now, he uses this term, and there's two things in this little phrase, the household of God. Uh, The the first thing is this, that when a church gathers, they should gather under the understanding that they're gathering in a household. A household. First, whose house? God's house. And we say it around here that this is God's church. That it's not not mine. It's not the elders. It's not a small group of people's. uh, It's not the staff's. It's his. It's God's church we have it on t-shirts you can get them online right uh, you're going to see it all over the place like this is God's church it's his and when we gather we gather under his name and under his authority now i'm not saying there's not structures and decision matrix and all these types of things the rest of the letter lays all of that out but ultimately we always have to gather under the idea that it is his that it is God's church and strong churches recognize who's really in charge him him but in that, we also understand this, that, uh, that, that church is a family. Uh, families meet in houses. And that's why even uh, today when there's these ideas that, like, churches shouldn't have buildings, and every once in a while this comes up, uh, you, you ask people who get into those situations, right, and they say, churches shouldn't have buildings, they shouldn't have buildings, and, uh, and they should meet in houses. And, uh, and really, the proper way to look at the church building is just uh, the, the, the family got so big that we needed a bigger house. Houses. Families have houses. And so, so we have a house, and it's this. And, and now it's God's house, and it's his family. But it reminds us that when we meet, that we are to meet as a family. And uh, when you think of a church as a, a business, right, uh, as compared to a family, then you would operate much differently, this is why even as a church, if you're new around here, we have something called our family fund, where we set aside 10% of every penny uh, uh, that comes in, and we put it in a different way to take care of the needs within our church family. Why? Because we're a family. That's how church is supposed to operate. That's how strong churches are supposed to operate, okay? And so, I don't know, maybe we need to come up with, like, a secret handshake or something so that when we see each other out in public, we can, like, flash the redemption R or something like that, <laughs> right? So we know, like, ah, oh, you're, you're part of the family, You're part of the family. Church is a family. And so then, what does that mean? Uh, It means that when we show up like a good family, right, when we show up here on Sunday, there should be a sense of peace. There should be a sense of encouragement and grace. There should be a sense of these are people who have my back, There should be a sense of, uh, wow, I made it to the little family reunion this week, and now I'm going to get encouraged, and we're going to partner together, and we're going to hear the word of God, and then we're going to be released back out to the things, but then we'll come back again next week, and we'll partner again, and we'll gather again as a family. It means that we should sense that and feel that we we should be that for each other. Because church, here Paul is telling us, is a family. The next thing uh, that we're seeing here is this. He says, uh, how you ought to behave in the household of God, right? Uh, which is the church of the living God. Now, here's when he actually gets to the word church. He was kind of describing it beforehand, but now he gets to the the actual word, which is the church. Now, this word church uh, is a word uh, ecclesia, and the the word itself used for church teaches us something about the very nature of what church is supposed to be. Uh, In this idea, when we understand that strong churches understand themselves as an ecclesia, I would compare or contrast that most to uh, as an ecclesia, not a building. It's not bad to have a building. I just explained that. Families have houses. We have a house. But we still need to understand the nature of the church as an ecclesia and not as a building. In order to do that, we need to understand the original term to a, a little bit of a degree, Ecclesia. The word ecclesia uh, was uh, a word that the Greeks used, and it de- uh, described a group of people who would get together, and this is how uh, it would kind of function, that there would be the entire city, uh, right? So a particular city-state, and what they would do is they would have an ecclesia, which was a high honor to be a, a part of, and the group that was pulled to be in the ecclesia would uh, depart for a moment from the city-state, and they would go out to a separate place and have what was like a sacred assembly, and there they would have conversation, right, and they would uh, make decisions and discuss policy, and what is the structure going to look like of our city-state, uh, and what are the problems in it, and what needs needs to need to be addressed. Uh, and they would get, and it was a high honor to, to be called into the ecclesia. And then you would have their, they would have their conversations in the ecclesia. And then after that, when the decisions were made, they would come back and they would reabsorb themselves into the city-state, knowing what decisions had been made. And those decisions then would be implemented so that the city-state itself was now changed. You tracking with me? Now, Eric was hitting this a little bit last week, because what Eric was describing to us last week is this current bad idea in the church uh, that we are like an ecclesia that just gets pulled out and then just stays here, talks about whatever we want to talk about, and then goes back and slips into society like we never met. That's not the strong church. That's the weak church. See, the very nature of the word ecclesia was this idea that what happens is there's a sacred assembly or a gathering, and it is sacred not because we are special, unique, or amazing. It is sacred because the presence of the living God is there. The presence of the living God is there, and uh, and we're 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 pulled out. And you say, "Oh, how are we pulled out? We are pulled out because we have uh, because we have been redeemed by Christ. Because the gospel has changed us. And what the ecclesia is was everyone who has been pulled uh, or changed by Christ has now been pulled out of the world, in a sense." Right, been pulled out of the uh, the economy of the world or the uh, 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 the rule of the world, and has been pulled out to gather together in the assembly of the saints to now hear from the Lord through the teaching of the word, through prayer, right, through worship, to hear uh, and to be gathered there when they're there. How are they supposed to operate as a family? Okay, and so they're supposed to operate like that. They're supposed to hear the word of God. The gospel is supposed to change them. They're supposed to pray to the God of the universe. Verse, right for his will to be done and then they're supposed to just, uh, depart the assembly and make their way back into the culture understanding the decisions or the prayers or the things that have happened over there to now come over here and infect in all of the right ways the culture does that make sense this is what the word means and so, the very idea of the church as something that you just go to and, uh, and huddle in, and then what happens in there is supposed to just stay in there and not affect out there, is contrary to the very nature of the word that God selected to describe his movement. It's all wrapped up in the word itself. And so, strong churches know that they are an ecclesia, they are a sacred gathering, sacred because the Holy Spirit indwelt that are supposed to meet under the headship of Christ with a familial type spirit to be changed by the gospel and to re-enter for the lordship of Christ. That's strong churches. And strong churches, my friends, are needed. So that's what the strong church is. Question two. On to question three. What is question three? Question three is this Well, what does a strong church do? Don't you love it when Paul just lays things out so clearly for us? He says, This is the church of the living God. What does a strong church do? It is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A pillar and a buttress of the truth. What does that mean? Well, it means that the church is uniquely called and the only entity created to promote and to defend the truth. That's what the church's purpose statement is. So why does the church exist? To promote and to defend the truth. What truth? Well, first, the truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the only way to the Father, that truth, okay? But not just that truth, the entirety of the truth of Scripture, the Word of God, because all of it is inspired and inerrant, all of it. And so the church's very purpose is to promote and to defend the truth. And so where an entity or an organization or something no longer promotes or defends the truth, you either have a revelation moment where God says, I'll just take out the candle, right? Uh, 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 I'll burn it up, right? Or you have have a moment where that that thing is no longer operating within its purpose, then it ceases to be that thing anymore. How do you know then? That a church is operating in its function that it was created to. Because it is promoting and defending truth. What truth? The truth that the enemy is most attacking in that current moment. Because that's what courage is. It is not courageous to promote and defend truth that nobody's questioning. It is very courageous and the call of the church to promote and defend truth that the enemy is trying to destroy or diminish in the current season. So how do we do it? Well, first, the church is called to promote truth, and so we we have to do that through the preaching of the word of God, right? And by believing the Bible, If you're new around here, we have seven values. Value number four uh, is, it's sad that it actually made our value statement. And here's what I mean by that. Value number four is we believe the Bible. And we shouldn't have to say that. Like, we're church. You're supposed to believe the Bible. But we did that just to make it clear to people. We believe the Bible. We believe all of it. We believe it from the first page to the last page. Every part of it. And so it's the church's job to promote the truth of God's word through the preaching of the word and through, uh, and through holding to and adhering to the fullness of the truth of God's word. That's the first thing that the church is supposed to do, promote the truth. But here's the second thing, and I believe it is the second thing uh, that, that we are uh, uniquely wired, We, uh, I mean the church of today, uh, uniquely wired and called to do, and that is this, to defend the truth. There are seasons in time where it is the promotion, right, uh, that God moves in, okay, and he moves through both of these, right, uh, but in particular seasons in history uh, where the defense of truth kind of comes to the forefront, and we're in that right now, that it is the job of the church to be the buttress of the truth, and by the way, uh, notice when it says it is the, the, the aim of the church to promote and defend the truth. It doesn't say to promote and defend itself, its brand, its budget, its mission, its goal, its largeness, its whatever. No, the truth. The truth, that's the call. And so we're supposed to defend the truth. What are we supposed to defend the truth? From I mean, if you think of even the architectural idea here of the buttress, right? Uh, You have a pillar which elevates something. You have a buttress. And what does a buttress do? A buttress uh, allows the the architectural structure, whatever it might be, to be able to withstand uh, either different types of build-out structure uh, that it wouldn't have been able to without the buttress or to protect against gravity or or outside forces or natural disaster or whatever to hold its structure. That's what it does. It, It defends against decay or weight, or pressure coming on and destroying the thing and leaving it flat. And so it is the job, let me be very clear, it is the job of the church to defend the truth of God's word. And where the church doesn't defend the truth of God's word, it is not operating in its current purpose. If I'm not speaking clearly enough, here's what I'm saying. To be afraid to defend truth right now is to not operate within the natural calling that God had for its church. In other words, there is no excuse. It's the very nature of the thing to defend the truth. Defend the truth from what? Let me give you a couple. Um, defend the truth from political, pr- uh, political pressure. Political pressure that typically what it wants to do is silence the truth. And we're seeing this again. I pointed out some stories in Canada. We know that's not just in Canada. Uh, it, it creeps its way into here as well. Uh, but to defend against political pressure, to um, defend against cultural pressure. And what does cultural pressure typically want to do? In today's world, we call it, it wants to cancel you. And so to defend truth against that. Maybe some of you saw the very disturbing news story that was uh, coming across uh, over the last week about the Arizona school board. And uh, what this was was an Arizona school board um, voting, and it was one lady uh, who, who basically what was going on is the school had an, uh, an agreement with a traditional Orthodox Christian college, right, uh, to allow kids to be uh, educated or to allow their students to come and to serve in the public school system. And the school board official said, I think we should cut off our agreement with them because it is dangerous to let Christian students come in and educate our children. Okay, if anyone's out there and they're like, Stephen, I don't know why we keep talking about this stuff. Wake up, okay? Wake up. And we can pretend like it's not getting worse. And you say, well, when do you stop? When the tide has turned. That's when. When the tide has turned. And will it turn? We are believing that it will, okay? But you can't just stop in the middle of a fight. You have to keep going. Number three, personal pressure. Uh, typically, what it wants to do is crucify you. Personal pressure. And personal pressure uh, then comes in, and it comes in in many forms, okay? Uh, you know, right now, I already mentioned it earlier, the, the, the funniest type of personal pressure is all of the nice one-star Google reviews. But here's the good news about our one-star Google reviews. They're like putting gas in my tank, okay? You just keep filling them out, and I'm just going to keep getting more fired up, okay? So in that regard, you know, whatever. But there's this, the, these personal pressures, and the personal pressures, they can come from inside the church or outside of the church, and, and, and the personal pressures are just, well, you know, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe, maybe you should tone down your language a little bit. I, I hear that one all the time. Maybe you should tone down your language a little bit, Stephen, right? And, or, 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 you know, uh, maybe we should just go on and, and do something else right now and just like, you know, I bet the world will just fix itself. Yeah, a lot of history on that one. Yeah, let's do that. Number four, theological pressure that wants to change you. And theological pressure then, again, it comes from inside the church. It comes from uh, mostly inside the church, hopefully not inside our church, but inside the larger church uh, where, and you'll see this already, you've probably seen the disturbing videos of people who were leaders in the church 10 to 15 years ago, um, And and, and some of the views and perspectives that they are now trying to teach. And I sat in the conferences 10 years ago that they were leading, okay? And by the way, uh, I I was having this conversation with Eric. I said, Eric, when these two men were the ones who were leading the church nationwide 10 to 15 years ago, it's no question why we're where we're at today. From the source, right? From the source, And so theological pressure comes in or doctrinal pressure comes in, and it typically comes in from high places within the church, people who have influence, who want to change what has always been understood as the truth of Scripture. And so, you know, in many regards, all we can do is stand for truth. You can also just stop buying their books, right? That's another idea. But to hold the line on what is true, that is the church's job. Okay, by the way, remember what I'm talking about here. This is not like the church that is being awesome. This is just the church that is doing its core function, promoting and defending the truth. That's its job, according to this text. Here's the last one. The last pressure is atrophy. And what that does is it wants to just make you useless or tired. And, you know, isn't it, a lot of you, you've been very kind, you said, like, hey, how you doing, you know, after last week, and asking me, or staff, or just people in general, because there was a build-up and all of this kind of stuff, and there's like this emotional, whew, and I'll be honest with you, um, I, I walked in this morning, and, and this is rare, I was like, I don't know, I don't even feel like preaching, right, and, uh, and then the power was out, and there's all of these things going on, and there's all these little things that oftentimes want to build up, and build up, and just go, what's the point, What's the point? What's the point? And, and whether that's from a corporate perspective on some of the things or it's just the little things in you. You get tired or your work isn't going the way that you want or there's a fight with a kid or there's all of these other things. And there are all of these little things that the enemy wants to do. And what he's trying to do is just kind of like just push you down, push you down, push you down, push you down uh, so that you give in or give up. And part of our job every single Sunday and part of why church has to be a family uh, is that we get back together here. And this is why Hebrews says, don't neglect the gathering, that we gather back together. And where the enemy has tried to push back down a little bit, we can see somebody walking in with slumped shoulders and say, stand back up, brother. Stand back up, sister. This fight is not over. In fact, we're here to fight with you now. So let's pray together for whatever that thing is. Let's chase away if you're believing lies because the enemy has gotten a place in your mind and let's stand strong together because the world needs strong churches. And it is the strong church that stands in the gap protecting the world from the attacks of Satan. And where the strong church does not stand, lies will stand In its place. Like I said at the beginning, if the truth will set you free, then lies will enslave you. It's almost not almost. It is. God looked down and he said, I need a body, I need a family, I need a movement, I need an ecclesia, I need a church. And no matter what season, no matter what culture, no matter what era, no matter what cost will stand and always promote and defend my truth. So friends, we have to ask ourselves, will we be that? And will you be that? And yes, the battle is long and the battle is hard, but my goodness, the battle is worth it. Because on the other side of it, on the other side of it, where there is defeat. You say, well, what happens, Stephen? What happens if, uh, if the strong church doesn't stand? 30, 40 years ago, statistically in Europe, it was believed that 60, then 50, then 40% of the European continent was Christian. You know what those best guesses are now? About 5%. Why? Because the strong church didn't stand. Don't be so foolish, prideful, or arrogant to think that that can't happen here. And so what is the God-instructed opposition to that? The strong church promoting and defending truth. And just in case you don't end up here and you go somewhere else, let me give you some warnings on the way out. The weak church will aim to please man instead of God. The weak church will say things like, I'm trying to balance both sides. The weak church will abandon orthodox doctrine. The weak church will embrace cultural Marxism. The weak church will hide behind statements like, I don't want to be political. The weak church will be more afraid of offending culture than offending God. The weak church will proudly, proudly wave their pride flags. The weak church will forget and not talk about sin. And the weak church will have a weak Christ whose crucifixion was nothing but a cosmic example. A weak church will seek to entertain instead of educate you. A weak church will remain silent on the issues of our day. The weak church will think that the government is their master. And the weak church will abandon critical thinking and instead take on critical theory. Paul says, you are the church church of the living God, the living God, a God that is alive, I would say is ferocious, a God that is mighty, that is a conqueror and a hero, a rescuer and a redeemer. And strong churches are built on that living God and strong churches are built and are needed in this season to do exactly what this text declares it to do, to proclaim and defend all that which is true. So let me tell you what is true, a little bit of it. The strong church will proclaim and defend biblical marriage between a man and a woman. A strong church will proclaim and defend that God created male and female. A strong church will proclaim and defend that homosexuality is a sin. A strong church will proclaim and defend that Marxism is a work of Satan aimed at racial division, destroying the creative spirit and crushing God-given freedom. Strong churches will proclaim and defend religious freedom in the public square, will proclaim and defend biblical justice and biblical perspective on race. Strong churches will proclaim and defend the inerrancy, inspiration, and relevance of Scripture because strong churches proclaim and defend that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. And that's how you'll know the difference. And it's pretty clear. Because lastly, lastly... Strong churches know who they're built on. And isn't it great how Paul ends this? Notice where he ends it. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. In other words, even at the end of his discussion on the truth of Scripture uh, and the truth of the church and its need to be a pillar uh, and a defender, a promoter and a defender, he says this because the strong church knows who it's built on, and he says, let me describe him to you. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. Jesus. Because ultimately, what strong churches know is this, that they are built on Christ as the cornerstone and foundation. Christ and Christ alone. And so strong churches do know something else, that Christ is both full of truth and full of love. And so strong churches can both unashamedly stand for truth and can sit down with those who must disagree with them. Strong churches can both preach the word to its fullest and should love most sacrificially. And strong churches are both fully aware of the damages of sin, but also of the transforming power of grace and will offer it to all who would walk in its doors or all who it would see as it leaves. That's the strong church, friend. And strong churches need strong followers of Christ. Strong churches are made up of followers of Christ who have committed in their way in your way to the very things that we've talked about this morning. This is exactly what our world needs. And we could talk about numbers two, three, four, and five in our series here, but it starts with this one. It starts with this one Strong churches standing in the gap. So let's be one. Let's support others. Let's, in a loving way, challenge those who, have, who are not. Let's start ones. That will uh, we'll do the same. Let's look around our country and pray for and bless those who are standing as well. And let's be the church that Jesus came to plant. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the ultimate pillar. You promoted truth by, by, by being truth manifested. Thank you that you are the ultimate defender. Lord, you defended us against the lies of the enemy. But the way you defended us is amazing. You defended us, Lord, by taking all of the blows upon you on the cross so that you could rise victoriously from the grave, proving that the lies have no weight, that truth always wins. And so, Father, I pray that that truth, again, would break into our hearts, that it would compel us to love, and to proclaim truth exactly as you did. And Lord, I pray here that in unity, as a family, as a movement, that you would allow us to walk in exactly what Paul taught us here, what your Holy Spirit taught us, to be a promoter and defender of the truth, for it leads to freedom. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.